What we've just experienced in these last two elements of worship, of gathering at the meal, and then that incredible song, those two songs that Brian and the team brought to us, even the coloring in the room. We were catapulted till the end of Jesus' life. And we could feel the weight of what he gave up. And then we could feel the power of him rising from the dead. We're on a journey. I'm going to take you back about two years from that event this morning. Because I'm overwhelmed by how much Jesus was rejected. And not just there, but even earlier in his life, as if he was already letting us all see this was going to be painful, this was going to be hard. And a big, big part of that was his own rejection that would nearly crush him while he was still alive. Rejected by those he loved the most. You ever been rejected? Now I'll ask it a second time so it's not perceived as rhetorical. How many of us can right now go back and say, man, I remember one time when I felt so rejected by a person or by an event in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of nice to know even in this we're not alone. Jesus himself did too. Rejection can can deeply scar a human life my story the one I remembered on this goes back 50 years golly I'm getting old that's why I can't wear shoes like Brian on stage those are really cool shoes I leaned over to Jill and I said do you think I could get away with that and she just goes no uh, <laughs> uh, I was in the fifth grade and we lived in Spokane Washington, and I made uh, the the 11 through 13 year old baseball team. Not just any team. We were really, really good. We were so good that we would be playing for the city championship. So here I was, one of two 11 year olds on a 11, 12, 13 uh, little league team, and uh, we got. <laughs> We got to the city championship. This was so big that there weren't just scores of people. There were hundreds, maybe a couple thousand watching us. There was television cameras and news people there. And, and so I was really happy uh, that as an 11-year-old, I knew I would not play in this game. Uh, I'd only played a few times during that year. And 11-year-olds don't get to play much. I was just proud to make the team at all, you know. And so uh, the game was going on, and we were losing, and we got to the bottom of the last inning when we were up to bat, and we were losing. And this, you know, this would be crushing if we lost this. And one batter got up, and he was out. And then the second batter was told to sit down. And the manager looks over. He says, Lonnie, get up there. And I thought... I don't want to get up there. Uh, 13-year-olds who pitch throw the ball really fast. I hadn't hit one all year. I'd been up maybe five or ten times. I didn't even hit the ball all year. That's how bad and scary 13-year-olds are. And now I'm up there, and I go up there with the bat, and, 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 and I'm thinking, we're behind. This is a city championship. Okay, okay, do the best you can. And I did. 
And I was, I was worshiping the power of that pitch. I just watched it come in and go right into that mitt. Strike one. The next one was a curveball. Wow, look at that. No way I can hit it, but I loved watching it. Wham, number two. And number three, I didn't even swing. I didn't, I'd struck out in three pitches. Well, just before the third pitch, all the guys in my dugout, our 25 players, they're yelling at me and they're saying things to me. And I said, well, they're cheering me on. I don't know what they're talking about there. And then after I struck out, that is the longest walk in the world for a little boy when you're walking back. to the, And then the next guy got up and he was out and we lost the game. And no, they, wouldn't even, they didn't even talk to me. And, and two of them did. Two of them did. One, I don't remember what he said, but Timmy, I remember. He, he, he says, do you know what we were trying to say to you up there? And I go, no, I didn't know. He says, we were saying get down lower because you're so little anyway. If you get down lower, they won't be able to throw strikes and we'll get a batter on base and then our good hitters can hit them in. And I thought, that really doesn't help me at all. Right? <laughs> Oh, man, I, I'll never forget that. It still scars me to this day. Rejection, rejection, rejection. Did you know Jesus was deeply rejected, far worse than that, while he was still alive? Open your Bibles with me now to the sixth chapter of Mark, if you have them, or turn them on, whatever you like to use. When I'm not speaking, I bring both my written Bible, paper Bible, and I bring my... Uh, iPhone, because I like to have multiple versions going on at the same time. Angry Birds. No. I never do that. Jesus would see. Okay. All right. Uh, interesting. This, this should be a great moment. This should be Jesus in, in full glory. Here's why. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Incidentally, page 995 in the Bibles that we provide for you, if you'd like to look at one of those. Jesus left there, Capernaum, at Galilee, and he went to his hometown where he would be accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and all that heard him were amazed. Okay, here's how it starts. Jesus is going home. He's been away. Here's where he's been. We'll show you on the, on the map, on the screen. Jesus has been in the Galilee region called Galilee of the Gentiles. Non-Jewish people dominated the Galilean region. And then he is going to head home 25 miles southwest to Nazareth. And you can see by the topography there that it's actually in the hills. Uh, the uh, agriculture was really big there. Some farming, of course. Uh, but basically it's a little hovel of a village. Uh, we know now that it was approximately 60 acres in its total size, the, the village of Nazareth, and we believe that no more than four or 500 people lived there. Incidentally, if you've come onto our church property, we own 50 acres. So it's just a little, all of Nazareth is just a tad bigger than, than our property that is here. It's a know-nothing podunk town. It's never even mentioned in the Old Testament at all. And Josephus, the historian, doesn't mention it, which has caused many liberal scholars and skeptics to say, well, this is how we know the Bible isn't correct, because as far as we can tell, there never was a Nazareth. Okay? 
well, till 1955. And underneath the Church of the Annunciation in archaeological digs, they have found uh, architecture, uh, buildings, pottery, dating to the first century A.D. So we know there was a Nazareth. We've even found, archaeologists have even found one scroll that shows the assignment of a priest from Jerusalem to go to Nazareth. Okay, So it's not that it didn't exist, it's just it had nothing going for it. So Jesus was raised in a town that really had nothing going for it. So here's what I'm saying. Can you imagine how pumped they are that Jesus is coming? Because they've heard what's happening over at Capernaum. And, and, and everybody's hearing the things he is saying and even more, the things that he's doing. This, this is hometown hero coming home now. This is Hosanna, 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 Hosanna. Jesus Christ, superstar, is good. All right, so you got all that going on and they're, all, they're waiting for him to come into the town and the disciples are thinking, oh, this is going to be great. I've heard Mary's a good cook. Did you hear Mary? Oh, yeah, I heard Mary's a good cook. He's going to be a star there. He's a star everywhere yeah but it'll be good for him to be home and just enjoy the people he grew up with and that looks like that happened initially he began to he got they invited him to speak in church he got up on the sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and it says the people were amazed all of that looks like what you might expect great homecoming but that isn't what happened Look at the second part of verse 2. Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this just Mary's son? Isn't he, isn't he just the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, not Judas who will betray him. Jesus actually had a brother named Judas. And Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? And then look at this. This is a terribly disturbing phrase. They took offense at him. You can actually take that word offense and it can be translated as they were repelled by him. He didn't come home as homeboy hero. Something else was at work. What is it? Well, look at, look at again right at the beginning of verse 2, I'm sorry, at the end of it, where did this man get these things? They don't even call him Jesus. Where did this man get these things? And then the next thing, it says, isn't this the carpenter? Uh, now, they're not putting down carpenters. In fact, the word there, which we translate carpenter, is tekton, and it means craftsman. They worked in masonry, they could work in wood, they could fix anything, they could build anything. I mean, it's noble. the trades are noble. But the point we're making is um, carpenter versus metaphysical scholar, spiritual superstar, huh? He's a carpenter. It, it, it's, it's an issue of proficiency. Then the next thing they say, this is all right here in the text. Isn't this Mary's son? Ah, that's really interesting. Shouldn't have said that. It should say, isn't this the son of Joseph? That's how children were recognized by the father's name. Isn't this the son of Joseph? And it says, isn't this Mary's son? Now, 
that may mean that Joseph had died quite a few years ago. So naturally, the town of where he grew up, 400 people or so, they knew him as Mary's son, the carpenter. Possible, possible. But other texts suggest that even if someone is deceased, uh, you still call the, the, the prodigies uh, by the father's name. Uh, Jesus will be the son of David, even though David had died a thousand years before Jesus came. It may mean, I think it does, and not me so much, but scholars who are much better at all this than, than, um, than I am, they think, hang with me now, that this is a slam against his heritage. Some of them always believe that Jesus was illegitimate. You know about that. Joseph thought that the baby Mary was carrying was illegitimate. Most probably never accepted that. <laughs> Would you accept the virgin birth? <laughs> and so, in a small town community, incidentally, rumors are the food of small communities. Uh, this is this is Mary's son. Thank you very much. This is just Mary's son. We've never put a lot of weight in him. Nice kid, did all right, but you know, huh? Certainly, nothing special about him. And and then that's finalized when they say, "Isn't this the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us?" In other words, hold it. He's just a regular guy. At best, he's a regular guy, and he may not even be one of our best at being a regular guy. You know what I mean? I'm not saying, but you know. Some of that's going on. I know it was going on. I know it was going on because in chapter 3, when Jesus is over in Galilee doing his thing, it says that his family had come all the way to Nazareth to Galilee. Why? They wanted to take him away because they thought he was out of his mind. The rumors were already spreading through Nazareth. I mean, the things he did, I, we don't know what to do with that, but the things he's saying, he's out of his mind, and his family had already gone to try to get him. Twice they tried to get him to come with them. So why did Jesus go to Nazareth? I think it was partly because he wanted to help his mom. She had been bearing the weight her whole life of the perception that she bore a child out of wedlock. She bore it. She'd come and tried to get him. She needed him. I think that's part of the reason this son heads home. Now, we know that wherever he goes too, he's got a lot more going on. He's going to birth the kingdom of God in a place and it can spread richly and transform this community. It can become transform people that transform this village. This can be a sterling example of the kingdom of God on earth because Jesus is going there if they will believe in him. But they don't. Anything else going on here? Yeah. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Turn a page to Luke chapter 4. 
starting in verse 16. It's on page 1018 in the Bibles we provide for you here. Hey, incidentally, if you don't have a Bible and you want one of these, take it with you. We would love to gift you with one of our church Bibles if you don't have one. Be our joy. Uh, because as you can tell, if you come to our church, we're going to use the Bible all the time. We believe God speaks to us today in authority through the Scriptures. Okay, now, watch this. Verse 16. He went to Nazareth. All right. Now, this means one of two things. It means either it's a separate occasion when he goes to Nazareth, or many believe this is the same occasion, but it's through Luke's recollection and what he picked up in his investigation. In other words, you're going to pick up other things from the same story. Here's the point. It really doesn't matter if it's the same story or if it's a different story. It shows us what Nazareth is dealing with in their rejection of Jesus. All right. He gets there, and just like in the Mark passage, it says Sabbath day, he goes to the synagogue, he's speaking, only Luke tells us even what he was speaking. <laughs> and he unwraps the scroll. Remember, there weren't books, there's scrolls. And he unwraps the scroll, and he reads two amazing verses. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. They would have loved that. Why? These are verses that are their hope that the Messiah someday is coming and this is what the Messiah will do. And for, so the hometown boy coming home to, tell, to lift up those verses again from Isaiah 57 and 61, wow, he's truly an Orthodox Jewish boy. Hope of the Messiah. Then look what happens. Verse 20. He rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and he sat down. That's cool. That's dramatic. The eyes of everyone were fastened on him. And then he began to say, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, the Messiah is with you. I am him. No, you're not. You're just a guy, you're a carpenter, you're Mary's son, you're just a regular person. Well, <laughs> that would have been bad enough. He is out of his mind. But he makes it worse. In verse 23. He says to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Yeah, you all want me to do here what I did in Capernaum. And then he says, truly I tell you, no prophets accepted in his hometown. And then he says, I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut up for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Sidon's in Syria. 
Hold on to that. Very important. And then he says, verse 27, And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha. Not Elijah, but now Elisha, the prophet. Yet not a single one of the Jews was cleansed. Only Naaman, the Syrian. Twice, Jesus says, Oh, by the way, I'm not only the Messiah, I'm here for everybody. Not just you 400 cloistered Jewish people living in a village where you claim ethnic superiority. That's what he's saying. They don't like that. Look at verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up. They drove him out of town. They took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Incidentally, rabbinic literature says if you really want to stone somebody, throw them off a cliff. That gets it done. So they're obeying rabbinic literature. This guy is a blasphemer. He claims he's Messiah and he dares to say that God embraces people apart from the chosen ones. What happened? Verse 30. Edge of the cliff. Nothing there but death. And he looks at the crowd and then he walks right through them. He's not going off the cliff until he decides it's time to go off the cliff. And there will be a time. He'll go to a cross. But this isn't it. So the power and the authority that was in Christ somehow was exuded. Same thing happened when he was arrested in the garden. And all those soldiers are around him and swords are flaring. And Jesus says, you've come for me, that's enough. And everybody fell down as if frightened to death. That's happening here, I think. And he walks right through them. And he gets his guys. And they leave Nazareth. Verse 7 says, they take off and they head back to the other towns and the villages. Wow, 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 wow. So there's all of that going into this rejection of Jesus. But let me say a word about this thing called ethno-superiority. Because it wasn't just something that plagued Jewish people in Nazareth. It, it has plagued Hitler's. It has plagued, um, in our own nation, the sad, sad story of slavery. It, it plagues people from India placed under the caste system. One of the uproarious, despicable sins of humankind is to call others not like us less than us. And God won't stand for it. Look at this verse which comes to us from the Apostle Paul. Galatians 3, 28, 29. There is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. There is no superiority issues any longer. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, 
then you are Abraham's seed and you are heirs according to the promise. He's got the whole world in his love. How dare anyone speak less of someone created by God, loved by God, for whom Christ will die. In, in, in a very small way, um, Friday night to me in our church, I don't know that I've ever been as happy as being here watching 2,300 people come in, families from all over our community, at least half not part of our church. You know what? We just think that's the greatest thing in the world. This church was put on a hill not to be separatist, but be inclusive of all people. And we love children, and we love families, and we want them to succeed, and God has given us the way to do it. And I'll tell you, I have never seen anything like it. Our, our children's ministry team, our operations team, we had kids throwing up in the chapel. It was really cool. <laughs> yeah, Dave Norep, Brian, you should have seen it. Dave is one of the lead guys on our operations team, and I see him going in with these rags, <laughs> getting down on the ground, walking out, getting more, and I go, that's what the church is about. <laughs> Everyone welcome. And you talk about ethnic diversity. Listen, you're going to hear from Pastor Rob from now until the end of the time. This church and any churches we plant exist for all peoples. And we can't wait to see more of the 50% that live in DuPage County who are not white guys start coming to our church and our churches if we start other ones. Oh, yes. Jesus smiles. But it nearly killed him. It nearly killed him. Now, can I shift points? quickly here now because there's something else going on now look the way Jesus sums up this affair back to our regular text Mark 6 two verses 5 and 6 he couldn't do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them verse 6 he was amazed by their lack of faith. He couldn't do any miracles there. Well, in context, only a few. Why? Lack of faith. Lack of faith. No faith. Evidently, only a few. My hunch is it was private settings when someone came to him sick or said, here's my little child, Jesus, please. I, I want to believe in you. He said, that's fine touch, heal, but only a few. And oh, what that must have meant to his grieving heart. He longed for the people he knew and had grown up with to embrace him and to receive him and to allow his power and his love to sweep through their village. But they wouldn't have it. And it amazed him. Now, there is a connection between faith and God's action. Isn't there? That's what Jesus is essentially saying here. I'm not doing any more. You say, well, Jesus couldn't do miracles? Wrong. <laughs> he can do whatever he wants, anytime he wants. But God decided that faith 
would be required for response from the Almighty. Now, there are times he works apart from that. Two weeks ago when I talked to you about him calming the sea, what did he say to the disciples after he did the miracle? He said, jeez, you guys, you ought to believe if anybody does. They didn't. He still did the miracle. So I am not saying God can't act without faith, but God dominantly chooses not to apart from faith. It is a supernatural, mysterious law of God. Faith results in God's action. Faith, action. Faith, action. Fear, faith. That's what he's talking about here. It is so powerful. It, 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 faith resulting in God's moving is as much of a law in the supernatural realm as gravity is in the natural realm. You remember the story. We all learned it. Isaac Newton sat under a, a tree and an apple fell and hit him on the head. And he goes, oh, gravity. It wasn't quite like that, but kind of. There's no way that he could have said, apple, thou shalt not fall. It's a natural law. Gravity. It is a supernatural law that faith results in God moving in ways that God generally doesn't move without faith. This is why Jesus is hitting on faith in chapter 4. Jesus is hitting on faith in chapter 5. Why was that dear woman healed last week when Pastor Rob brought us that incredible message? She had believed. He says, daughter, your faith saves you. When he goes and he raises up that little 12-year-old girl, she's dead. And he says, Talitha kum, rise, little one. The mother and father believed in him. You say, oh man, how much faith does it take to see God move in and through my life? And where does it come from? How do I get it? Here's the good news. God's grace is so magnificent that he even gives you the faith you need to believe in him so that he will work the way he chooses to. Look at this wonderful verse from Ephesians. It is by grace, God's unmerited love, that you have been saved through what? Faith, right, faith. And then look, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. The grace of God's love and the faith that we, re even the faith that you exhibited if you have given your life to Jesus Christ was awakened in you by God himself. So here's the good news. All you have to do is want faith to get faith from God. You say, yeah, yeah, but how much? I would figure raising the dead takes a tad more than give me an A on that spelling test. Well, here's the next point of good news. Evidently, it only takes this much, about the size of a mustard seed, Jesus says, to move a mountain. <laughs> so number one, God gives the faith and number two, it don't take much. There was a dear dad whose son 
was in epileptic seizures and was demon-possessed, and even the disciples of Jesus didn't, weren't able to bring healing to him. And he comes to Jesus and says, Please, Jesus, save my son. And Jesus says, Just believe. You remember what the man said to him? Oh, I do believe, but not enough. Can you help me in my unbelief? Can you help me in my faithlessness? And Jesus essentially says, that'll do just fine. Thank you very much. The boy is made whole. See, it's not the amount of faith you have. It's the attitude of wanting it that matters. You want it. You'll get it. You'll get enough. And God always moves through faith. Now, not always the way we want. And certainly not always in our time. We are praying for many people with serious terminal illness in our church. I don't know if any of them will be healed here. But if they know Jesus Christ, they're all going to be healed. If not here, there. Faith believing. Faith, faith and God's action are linked together. Well... One little aside, and then I'll close up with some applications. Would you look with me at verse 7? Brian, look at this. Dwayne, any other staff people that are here, uh, elders? I find this so fascinating. In verse 7, Jesus then calls the twelve to him, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them power over impure spirits. Here's what's interesting to me. It wasn't until they had experienced his rejection in Nazareth. It wasn't until they'd seen failure that he then says, okay guys, now it's your turn. Head out there. You know when they all wanted to go? Last week, chapter 5. Oh man, you can raise the dead with this thing. I want in on this. Jesus says, you're not ready yet. Let's take you into the midst of the deepest, most sorrowful rejection I can imagine. I'm going to let you watch me not work. Then you'll be ready, guys. Because life is full of gladness and quite a bit of sadness. So I just find that as a mentoring moment of interest. He didn't send them out until they'd seen this experience. Pretty cool. All right. Applications as we head home. Rejection. Failure. It's not final. Jesus was rejected, but what's going to happen soon? Jesus will be resurrected. So too. Nothing, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he promises that everything that goes on in your life will be brought together and somehow work for good. Rejection, failure is not final. Your God is your model in this. Number two, people will reject Jesus, but Jesus won't reject people. 
You say, yes, yes, ha, they leave Nazareth. He pulls out of town. Yeah, but he'd pull into Jerusalem in about two years, and he would hang on a cross, dying even for those that don't want him. He dies for the whole world. Does that mean the whole world is saved? I am not saying that at all. But I'm saying people's rejection of him doesn't mean that he doesn't do what is required to save them if they're willing. That's the love of God. So for those of you who have been far from God, angry at God, wondering about God, all of that is great. He can handle all of it. He's going to keep loving. He's going to keep seeking. He's going to keep showing himself to you. There's really only one danger in this whole thing, and that's the next point. Three. Jesus is amazed by one thing here. He can't believe they won't believe. He says he's amazed by it. I call this lack of belief willful, belligerent unbelief in the face of undeniable reality. And I'll say, as I said two weeks ago, the only danger anyone can be in is if they amaze Jesus in this way. Because he's done everything and will do everything to bring you to himself, to cause you to want to say, I'm coming to you, Jesus, or I'm coming back to you, Jesus. But a state of willful, belligerent unbelief until you die will get you what you want. And that is, no to God in eternity. If you want no to God here, why should it be any different in eternity? That's scary. There's one other thing that amazes him, though. This is number four. Number four, he is amazed by faith. It really gets him going. There was, a, there was a Roman centurion, over 100 men. His servant was ill. He travels a long distance to get to Jesus. He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make my servant well. Jesus says, I know, I'll come with you. The man says, Lord, and some of you know this from Catholic upbringing, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Speak but the word and my servant will be healed. Right? <laughs> And, and Jesus says, that works for me too. And the servant is immediately healed from a distance by a man who said, Lord, I'm not even worthy. You, you should come. Just, just say it. That's enough for me. And Jesus, it, says, it says, Jesus was amazed by that faith. So here's the question for you as I close the scriptures. What do you want God to be amazed by? Willful, belligerent, unbelief or faith even that much makes him smile it mysteriously unleashes the activity of God in ways we can't fathom on planet earth close with this if you haven't come to Jesus come now don't put it off one more day our prayer counselors will be here if you say, well, I used to walk with Jesus, I've gone far away, then I'd say, come back to Jesus now. Come forward. And finally, friends, 
Some of you, this has scared you, not for yourselves, but for those you love. Don't give up. Pray, pray, pray for the faith of God and the grace of God to reach even those who seem farthest away. He didn't give up on them. Don't you give up. Please stand. Lord, what a morning. The music, the prayer, the table with you, and now the opening of your word. Thank you, Lord. Now fill your people with faith of a mustard seed size that can change the world. I pray in the name of the one who was rejected but kept loving anyway. Amen and amen. See you next week, everyone.